Welcome to the next edition of P5 Podcast, where I was fortunate enough to sit with Murray Brzezinski, the CEO of Conversa Health, which, full disclosure, I am an investor in the company, an avid fan of the team, uh, the board of directors, from which I've learned a lot from, the way they have built the company, and where I see the company going. I think you will really find this interesting as they are on the front lines of patient communication, uh, COVID, and how things will play out for providers and for patients and how they communicate in the future. And with that, here is the recording of my interview with Murray Brzezinski, CEO of Conversa. Welcome to the next edition of the P5 Podcast. I am fortunate today to be sitting here uh, across country from Murray Brzezinski, the CEO of Conversa, a company in which uh, P5 invested last year uh, after looking at it several years earlier. Uh, so welcome, Murray. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here with you. And before we get into it, uh, just in, in full disclosure, uh, Murray and I were once fraternity brothers who... Uh, the, the most contact we had in, in that, in, in my freshman year, when, when you were a senior was a, uh, pledge brother football game in a foot of snow. when when I, I tackled you and, uh, you tore a few ligaments in your knee and, uh, never held it against me, at least as far as I knew. So <laughs> we have a long history. Um, anyway, uh, so Murray, could you, Give um, kind of a quick background on on Conversa and what you're doing, and then we'll get into where, where you really fit in the healthcare world going forward. No, I would love to, and I, I loved your introduction. I, I have to say that this contact with you has been much more pleasurable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I walked away from that night just fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we're reconnected now in this uh, this endeavor. And uh, yeah, Conversa, we developed a um, a virtual care and communication platform that we think really represents part of the future of the way healthcare will be delivered. And, um, you know, I, I used to talk about all the time that we're not quite at a tipping point in virtual care. We're at an inevitability point, meaning that, you know, I, it could paint the picture as to why in the future we would move in this direction, you know, 20% of GDP or close to it being spent on, on healthcare, not enough healthcare workers, um, you know, really middling outcomes compared to the rest of the world and not particularly good patient experience. So all of that would, you know, with payment system slowly moving to value-based care would ultimately push us into this world, but um, very difficult to predict the timing. And I always thought there would need to be a catalyst. And I think, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, having this, this COVID um, crisis for so many reasons of being unfortunate, I think is the catalyst. And, and now I think we are at a tipping point um, of having a, a future of virtual care. And what I mean by virtual care and what our platform does is it enables care teams to reach out and communicate with patients and capture all of the patient wisdom and use it to make real-time decisions about the patient's journey. So the patient can provide questions, um, validated patient-reported outcomes, um, anything you can capture from a sensor, all that wisdom gets looked at and analyzed in real time to determine is the next step in the patient journey 
Um, can it be done in an automated way and the patient's on track and we provide personalized motivation for them to continue what they're doing or it recognizes they're off track and it can use some um, nudge using behavioral science in the platform to get them back on track or do you need to have an early intervention with that patient and who should do it and what should be the care venue? So should it be a phone call with a case manager or a telehealth visit with a, a doctor or um, you know, live chat with a nurse? And so the platform is designed to basically um, do that on an ongoing basis. And so you can think about the future of, of healthcare being able to take care of patients at massive scale. Millions of patients could be on these platforms having these ongoing touch points that, that are really leveraging you know, all the knowledge the patient has about their own health and care. And we do this for chronic care. We do it for acute. We do it for pre and post procedures and pregnancy and cancer and any, any need across a large health system. Yeah, well, I, you know, as as someone who, when I was at Penn, uh, became a patient with a chronic disease, um, I I became very aware of the value of of patient information, and unfortunately, doctors always ignored it. Um, what I find fascinating about the COVID world is that you're seeing, you, you know, in in chronic care with autoimmune and other things, you can say, okay, well, this these foods or you know, and you're starting to see more and more of this. Uh, this this helps, this doesn't, this, and the doctors tip, historically ignored the information. And what I found over the years was the real reason they ignored it was they didn't know what to do with it. It wasn't that they didn't think it was important, but they couldn't do anything. And what I found really interesting about this COVID world is, oh, you know, a couple of Israeli doctors wound up in Italy and that if you turn the patients on their stomach, you were changing outcomes. And then they started doing it here. And then some people benefited from hydroxychloroquine and then others didn't and what time you know what stage of intervention it maybe it mattered maybe it didn't and you're starting to see in acute care all these variations and one of the things that really interested me about conversa was uh one of the anecdotes uh i, I don't know if it, i think it was a rat on patients this was last year when i was uh over a year ago when i was still doing uh, due diligence and, and maybe it's worth talking with a few of the paths that your various stakeholders go through because um, there's the value to the providers uh, as the system. There's the value to the doctors and nurses and other people that, that serve the patients. And then there's the perspective of the patients themselves. So um, maybe, maybe talk about the start. We'll, we'll start from the bottom up with the patient. Um, and, you know, maybe you want to talk either, you know, we've talked about uh, the impact on, on the colonoscopy group at one of your partners or Radonc, um, but maybe walk them through, walk the listeners through a path of a patient. Um, and why don't we start with colonoscopy? Sure. That's a great example. So colonoscopy uh, in the U.S., roughly 30% of patients fail to show up the day of their procedure. And most of them actually just are no-shows on that day, which means that not only are they not getting the screening they need and all of a sudden, you know, more of them are getting cancer, um, but they're not canceling. And so that slot is um, not able to be filled by another patient because there's not enough time to prep. And so the, it's a waste of the, um, the provider's time and all of the folks that are involved in that procedure and the health system loses, um, you know, a valuable valuable revenue generating visit. So it's, it's, it's bad for everybody. And so we, we developed a program and, you know, you can certainly call patients and remind them and that'll increase uh, or reduce the number of no-shows uh, somewhat. But 
the health system that we uh, did this in first was running at about 25% no-shows. So they're already substantially below the national average. And when we put this program in place, it reduced it to below 9%. So a 68% reduction in no-shows. And of the 9%, 100% of them were escalated to, to cancel um, early enough so that those visits could be filled with other patients. So 100% of those canceled appointments were able to be filled with other patients or the initial patients. So they're all revenue generating. And the vast majority of the original patients were getting the screen that they should get for, for better health. And the reason it worked is when patients are enrolled in a program that doesn't just remind them about their appointment. It, it, it tries to understand, are they planning to go? And when they express that they're not planning to go, it then is designed to engage them in a conversation about why not. And some of the main reasons that, that people aren't going to colonoscopies that were in this program um, are fear of the procedure and the, and the other risks, um, not, not sure if their insurance is going to cover it uh, for those that had financial issues, um, and others that um, had transportation problems. And those are just the top three. There are lots of others. And so a lot of this is behavioral and social determinant information that you can engage, you can understand, you can automate the ability to get them comfortable with them and most patients. And then for those that we couldn't automate getting them comfortable, we then escalate them to a person, a scheduler in this case, who has the information about why they're potentially not coming and can further engage with them to either talk them into keeping their appointment or help them cancel the appointment and schedule another patient. Hmm. And and what about, so then, okay, so the patient's treated, and then what about post-op care, and how does that? Yeah, and then post, uh, post-colonoscopy or post-any procedure, um, the patient is, is put into the program, and the program is doing what um, typically uh, a nurse navigator in a health system might do. So you get assigned somebody to check in on your recovery. And in some cases, the onus is just put on the patient to reach out if there are any, any issues in their, in their recovery. Um, and in the latter case, many patients don't reach out until something becomes acute, and then it's, it's more dangerous and it's more expensive. In the cases where you have to have a nurse reach out to the patient, it's extremely costly because most of the time they're reaching out, the patient is doing just fine. So enrolling the patients on these programs post-procedure allows a very high-frequency check-in with patients. It can identify when patients are on track. They're feeling like they're being cared for. It's reducing their anxiety um, and it's offloading the burden on the healthcare professionals, nurse in this case, who can spend time with patients who really need them. The system will escalate those patients that are actually having a problem where a nurse or another healthcare provider needs to intervene. And so it's really optimizing the use of very, very scarce resources. Hmm. And what about um, some, you know, what, going back maybe, you know, I mean, it's currently happening, but going back a year to one of the anecdotes that I had when I was doing, when I was looking, we talked about oncology patients and, and I, and I remember, you know, the, the asynchronous, asynchronous nature of this um, enables you to collect information because I do know from my own experience, if I'd have a colonoscopy, I never picked up when the when the nurse called. I never, you know, and I never got back to them. And once in a blue moon, when they reached me, I would say I'm fine, um, which I think is, you know, what my dad always said, and what I, I think a lot of men just say. If you ask someone, I do, yeah, I'm good. Everything's fine. It could be like on death's door. What you know, maybe talk a little bit about the nature of 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 how it works because it's not it's not you know 
the, the typical AI in the sense that that you just you know speak right. This is this is text based and it's text based for a reason. And, and maybe just talk a little about the nature of it and the accuracy and how that leads to actual valuable medical information. Yeah, let me let me um, answer that um, with with the use case you just brought up. So <clears throat> there we we did a or our health system partner, one of our health system partners, did a study with radiation oncology patients undergoing. Um, therapy for head and neck cancer. And so they had a cohort of patients that were enrolled in this program and they compared it to a cohort that was not in the program. And what they found was those in the program reported um, side effects from their treatment much earlier to the patient reported outcome, the questions in the chat, than they did through this instrument. It's called the CTCAE instrument. It's a way to report adverse events in person where they're sitting in front of their oncologist once a week. And not only did they report side effects, substantial number, two to three times the side effects earlier, but they, they reported severe side effects earlier as well. Side effects that cause patients to prematurely go off and terminate their, um, their treatment. So in the cohort that was on the chats, fewer than 1% of the people, the patients terminated their treatment and those that were not, it was, it was, above 8%. So a phenomenal number of people, you know, had experiencing nausea and other side effects and their, uh, their fix was to stop the treatment, which obviously is ex- extremely detrimental to their health. Health system loses revenue. Again, it's bad for everybody. And, um, you know, in this case, like you said, they're, they're engaging with this, um, this automated conversation. They're, they're doing it. It's an, it's in the, in the comfort of their own home. They're doing it at a time where they feel, um, they're, they're, um, they can do it. They're answering questions. They're not being judged. But in this case, we actually got some anecdotal feedback that you know patients also didn't feel like they wanted to burden their oncologist with their problems. And here, nobody feels that way about a chat. So there's lots of different. Um, there's a lot of literature that talks about people being more truthful, more comfortable speaking to a chat. Um, there's a lot of different complex reasons why that is, um, but certainly the data suggests that it that it is the case. And so it's it's very good if it's designed well at um, uh, and motivating, you know, beneficial behaviors. And so, um, so you said sitting in front of the oncologist now we're obviously in this, you know, people call it post COVID, but I'd say post pre COVID, uh, in the COVID world. Um, I mean, look, we, we, with our kids for years, we would call the doctor, a pediatrician at night if we had something that, cause inevitably everything started after 5 PM. Right. Um, or on a Sunday afternoon or, um, and then sometimes send pictures. So we were doing telehealth for, you know, on, on text and phones for years. Um, but how do you, how do you see things playing out now, um, in, in this COVID world and, and, and may, maybe talk a little bit about how this evolution is, is, is happening. Cause you're very much on the front lines and, um, and I'm actually going to interrupt that and start with, you made a strategic decision as a company led by, and this was your, your leadership to lean into the COVID thing a um, couple of several months ago at a, at a critical point for the company. And I'd love you to just talk about why you made that decision and how that's played out. And then we can go into this COVID world. Sure. No, it's a, it's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, when this hit, it was, it was very sudden and, you know, there's a lot of advice. There was the, you know, the Sequoia that went out to, uh, 
you know, to all uh, founders of venture back companies that, you know, echoed what they said in 2008, which is cut now, cut hard, cut deep. And that was the advice that I got was, you know, cut a third of the workforce from, from some folks and, you know, do not develop, you know, these COVID products. So you have no idea if it's a flash in the pan and, you know, and I step back and sort of said, first and foremost, you know, you, you, you have to go where the need is. And then, you know, you, you figure out the, the business, the economics, the monetization. So, um, we, so we made a decision that this right now is where everybody's attention was, was being focused. When I say everybody, I mean our customer base. And so we said, we're in a position to help. We have a very flexible platform. Um, let's turn to, let's, our partners turn to us and we said, okay, let's, let's decide together what's going to be valuable. What can't you get elsewhere? What's truly valuable? And we, we felt pretty early on that this was going to be a need for a while. And then it would go through phases just like previous, um, even though there's not a lot of predictability on the specifics, you certainly can look at, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it generally rhymes. And so we had some, you know, some conviction around this and we quickly developed, um, you know, we in general were very quick to develop products, but the the cycle here was nothing like I've ever seen. And we got these products into the hands of our really, really good health system customers super quickly, got feedback, and then scaled them up uh, very, very, very quickly. And, you know, it's only been eight weeks looking back, but there's no question now this is, you know, we think this is going to be a need that goes on for a while. There's derivative products we've been developing, and, and it certainly um, certainly was the right call. It's also, as we'll, we'll talk about, your, your previous question about COVID, but it's also allowing us to use it as a bridge um, to further the relationships that we've had and many new relationships that we've now developed because of these products. So, so maybe actually, because I, you were, we, we were talking earlier uh, before the, before we started recording about what, what you're offering and screening tools. And so there's, there's screening the patient and then there's, there's other tools you developed for your partners I think they're fascinating because I think they're a very critical part of the way healthcare will be done going forward. So maybe just talk about your various screening tools that are developed around this. Yeah, we, we first came out with um, a tool we call screener and triage, and it, it's designed for the, for a health system to uh, offer it to the general public and to their patients. And the whole idea, especially early on in, in the, in this uh, pandemic was there was a panic and there were lots of people who likely didn't have the, um, the virus who were clicking on, you know, the free link to go get their telehealth visit. And there was a, you know, five hour, in some case, 10 hour wait. Um, a lot of those people were going and clogging up testing facilities and they were rushing into, you know, the emergency departments and their doctor's offices. So the first need was, can we get a screen based on the CDC guidance, um, and other guidance and get people to go through a screen and give them comfort that many of them are unlikely to have the virus and, and give them peace of mind and get them out of clogging the system for those that need it because the system was overwhelmed. I mean, everybody, this whole idea of social distancing so we can reduce the peak, we, our, our approach was let's also try to help increase the capacity virtually. So so we did that. And then, and then for those that the tool identified as likely having the virus based on symptoms and or exposure risk, can we guide them to very local resources where um, where the health system wants them to go? So based on their zip code, we can get them to a specific testing facility uh, or a specific doctor's office or drive them into a you know the right telehealth visit. So that was the first product. And then as the, the pandemic um, and the environment evolved, we developed products to help 
manage patients in quarantine. We helped um, manage uh, the delivery of lab results to patients where call centers were getting overwhelmed. Um, and then we developed a, an employee health screener that was designed initially for healthcare workers and then essential workers um, that needed to come to work. And it was based on, again, CDC guidance, as well as the San Francisco Department of Health, which was the first Department of Health in the country to mandate a daily screen for people coming into healthcare facilities. So in that case, we turned to UCSF Health, or they turned to us, or we turned to each other pretty much at the same time, said, let's develop this. And so they were the first user. Um, they are they've now screened. We've done hundreds of thousands of screens uh, with their um, their employees, and now lots of health systems and even non-health systems now as the um, the country looks to open back up for work, there's a, there's a big demand for employers to be in the business of, 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 you know, safely allowing their employees to come back to work. And so we've got a number of large employers that are using it to screen their employees every day. Yeah, and, and you said something to me earlier today that, that uh, a lot of people, you know, that, that there's this general thing that all these people are asymptomatic, but if you really drill down and ask the right questions, they ne- weren't necessarily asymptomatic. And I, I've had that. I've learned over the years, especially because I travel a lot for work, that start noticing if I'm starting to feel off, right? And I think we all know when something wrong is hitting our body. I mean, it may not be 100% of the time, but if we know how to listen, and it, there's there's an essence of this from what you described earlier that that this teaches you how to almost listen to your body, right? Coaching someone to say, yeah, yeah I may feel off. If Does that make sense? Murray? Sorry, I think I went on mute there. Um, no, you're exactly right. I think one of the concerns is, you know, if up to 50% of people are asymptomatic, then, you know, how does this work? Well, so two, so two things. One, once you've made the decision to open up your your uh, work facility, then any screening is going to be good. I mean, the, you know, every year the average um, uh, efficacy of a vaccine is less than 50%, but yet everybody is, is recommended to do it because it, it reduces, um, you know, reduces the spread. Same, same thing here. So you're not expecting, um, hundred uh, percent, precision in your screen, but, but even more than that, the point you just made, it's not that 50% of people are asymptomatic. It's that 50% of people aren't reporting symptoms, uh, that they, that suggest COVID, but because the onus is on them, it's your point, unless you're trained to listen to your body, you're not doing it. And even more than that, the, the, we're learning about this virus. So the guidance from CDC is changing you know, on an ongoing basis. And so when we incorporate new symptoms and new exposure risks, we're then training the person who's doing the screening to look now for those particular symptoms or asking them to reflect on you know, their exposure each day. And so when you do that, the accuracy of what you're reporting is much, uh, much higher. Right. And um, how do you see the you know, somewhat of a summary, but but really, how do you see this evolution of care? Because there's all the talk about telehealth, and I'm just trying to fit you and generally the the, the paths of patients and doctors, and because it seems to me that offerings like chatbots. Um, and I hate to use that term because it's kind of sounds very generic when this is really a giant enterprise platform, 
But to the user, it's in a comfortable way and it, it provides the um, initial front line. And then it goes into the, tel- the teledocs of the world, et cetera, and how you, you, you partner and, and how that all plays out. Can you, you just kind of talk about how you see this evolution going? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, you know, telehealth, I, I talked to a couple of our uh, health system partners and what they were telling me is that the, the telehealth usage is it, telehealth as a percentage of total visits in the system is under 2% prior to COVID. And um, in one case, and this was this is outdated information, now it jumped to 60%. Another one talked about 90%. Um, and so it, it's an enormous shift in how people are um, you know, practicing medicine, how patients are seeing their doctors. And so, you know, one, I, I think we can talk about why this is the case, but I think this is going to last longer than most people uh, think. And then, um, you know, once we get to a point where it's less worrisome, I still think it's going to, there'll be a, you know, a permanent imprint about infectious disease and we'll have other cases. So, uh, you know, it might, it certainly may, may not stay at 90%, but it's not going back to two, right? And and I would think that it would stay up closer to the to the high end of the range, and so that is going to start training people that hey, you know, we can behave in this way. This we can consume care in a very different way. But that's really um, and telehealth is really a replacement for in person visits. And so what's still needed, as you talked about, is this front end piece. The, the, the really what virtual care should be is. This, these connections that are automated, you can do them high, you know, high frequency. The patient should be in control, and then you're identifying and intervening into something before it gets before it gets bad. And then you have sort of a, a, a hierarchy of escalations. And so once you can't handle it in an automated way, you might go to a phone call or to live chat, and then you escalate to telehealth. And then only in rare cases, um, when you actually need to lay hands on the patient. Um, do you need to actually have the the in person in person visit? You know, some sort of procedure or something that you can't do remotely. But even you know, I think of ourselves as sort of a superset of remote patient monitoring and telehealth. We we are a platform that's reaching out and deciding when do patients need to be connected to those endpoints, and those are episodic and infrequent relative to the number of times um, that a patient should be connecting with um, you know with their healthcare system or provider. Yeah. So this, this kind of leads my brain into all the different things that can go wrong and can go right. Not for, for, for you, but for the providers, your, your main, your current main customers, because, you know, we, we, as again, we we talked about a bunch of things earlier, but about the massive losses, some of which will be reimbursed by the federal government and some which won't. Um, and, and the, ma- the crazy number of furloughs of various healthcare systems and people that won't be rehired. And I mean, <laughs> Fairfield County, which got particularly hit hard by COVID, I, I heard last month about a series of, uh, of, of, um, of, of doctors just shutting down their offices and laying off people and leaving their, their, uh, country club memberships and, um, especially in the orthopedic space, because, you know, there was no high school or college sports. There's a bunch of colleges in the area. Um, but, but those, all, a lot of these places are going to have to go back to doing more with less. And, and so, so I, you know, you, you, you fit nicely. What, what does the ROI look like for when, when a customer comes to you? Yeah. 
Yeah, first of all, I think you're right. It's it's going to be a different world. I I think what's going to happen is um, people and and they're frantically planning to open up for non-emergency and elective procedures, but you need to do it in a careful way. So that not only those procedures need to be done more carefully, but all patients will have to be screened um, for COVID before they have those procedures. Anybody who's going to be inpatient is going to have to have visitors that get screened for COVID before they're able to come in. You can extend that to you know general society. You and I talked earlier about, you can imagine students being screened before they go to school, just like employees are screened before they go to work. It'll be incumbent on these institutions to be in the business of health safety. And in this case, it's not, I don't even think about it as health. I think about it as, um, you know, it's more like uh, when you put in a metal detector and instead of a, a gun, you're looking for a pathogen, right? So I think that responsibility, that onus will be on the institution. Um, and then as far as your example um, around the ROI for the, uh, for the procedure itself, you know, really, you know, one, as we talked about before, there's the cost of reaching out to the patient before and after a procedure to make sure they're prepared to come in and they're going to show up and make sure afterward that they don't have complications. And if they do, you address them before they become much more, um, much more expensive and, and risky. So we can reduce the cost of those, uh, those outreaches. We can reduce by, by, more frequently reaching out, we can reduce the um, the cost of the downstream the downstream medical cost of of not intervening earlier. Um, in the case of colonoscopy, for example, in the case of knee and hip replacement, it's actually we're providing revenue because there are people that cancel and don't show up. And so, by walking them through the process and making sure that somebody who had the initial intent to go for a procedure, um, we address because they always go through this this journey where there are friction points or hurdles they have to get over. So bariatric surgery, for example, lots of people who qualify, who sign up, have to go through a mandated education process. And throughout that process, there's a big drop off at each stage. Well, you can imagine that we have these programs where you enroll them and it makes sure that it's addressing the behavioral issues um, to help them get over those hurdles. So there's, there's ROI on the cost side um, and on, and on the revenue side. And, you know, adherence plays a big role in this as well. So if you're adherent, to a treatment plan, whether it's a drug or whether it's some sort of um, behavioral plan, then um, you know the outcomes, the desired outcomes, are predicated on that protocol. And you know, adherence is an enormous; it's, it's tens of billions of dollars uh, of, of, of loss in, in, in this country. And so, we have programs. The example we talked about before for, for radiation therapy is a good good adherence example. And. Um Maybe talk a little bit about the doctors and nurses. Um, I remember years ago when, when I had to pick my GI and I, I, um, I didn't like anyone until I found uh, a wonderful doc at NYU who said, when I told them all the then crazy things, a lot of them are you know about diet, et cetera, that are now kind of more commonplace. He said, you know, I don't know if any of that works because I don't have the time because I'm engaged with my patients all the time and I just don't have the time. But if you have something that works, I'm, I'm interested in learning more. And I was like, that's about as much as I can expect. Um, but this, how does this product impact, uh, you know, again, people are escalated when they need to be escalated, maybe just kind of summarize it, but also what I found fascinating, uh, when hearing, uh, West, uh, and Zeno is head of population health at, at Northwell, speak at the startup health, uh, conference, uh, in January was the peace of mind it brings to the doctors. They don't, they find 
they, and, and the nurses that they find that they don't have to worry about patients if they know more. And I'd love to hear about that soft aspect of, of, of what this provides. Yeah, that's a great, I think it's a great subject. Your, your doctor sounds enlightened because there's, you know, there, there are doctors that have the knowledge base they have from their own experience. And then there's this whole other world of evidence, which is wonderful. And everybody, you know, all the big, certainly the big centers aspire to be evidence-based, but it's very difficult because it's, it's very difficult to get all that broader knowledge down to an individual doctor at the time when they have the patient in front of them. So, so one of the things that, um, that the platform does is every one of these pathways or programs is evidence-based. So it reduces the variability of care. Now you're putting all these patients, the diabetic patients or chronic kidney disease patients on this platform, and it's evidence-based in every interaction. And so um, that's one thing. Second is it, it absolutely is providing um, autonomy to the patient. We follow something called self-determination theory, which recognizes that people do better if you can provide them autonomy, you can provide them the, a way to see that they're improving on some dimension that matters to them, and a way to see they're connected versus being isolated. And so it provides education, it provides the tools for them to practice self-care, and equally important as you're getting at, it really encourages shared decision-making where the patient is informed. It's not a one-way data collection device. It's a conversation for a reason. When the patient is providing input, whether answering questions or from their sensors and connected devices, it's responding in real time and showing them, here's a time series of your weight and here's why we're escalating you because you gain more than two pounds in 24 hours. And in a heart failure patient, that might be mean that you're retaining too much fluid and your Lasix needs to be adjusted. And so it explains all that. Well, it's providing the valuable information back to your care team. Hmm. So um, something I wanted to cover earlier that I'm going to go totally out of sequence uh, and then we'll come back and maybe summarize on you know, the future of healthcare and what you're seeing out there and, and what your sense of, of, um, of COVID itself and, and how care and will return because it has to return. Um, these elective things are not so elective, but the one thing I want to, um, just touch on is, is the team. Um, and the thing that ultimately most impressed me about the company was the quality and caliber of the board, which reset my requirements for any investing I do and what the board needs to be or not need to be the quality of the team and the level of partnership that you've had in particular with Northwell and then with others subsequently. And those three things have become, you know, to get adoption is very clear. You need a couple of big champions, not only to work and test uh, what, what you're doing, but prove and get that data. So what I, I'm, I'm talking about what it is to, the, to your customers, but also what it is as an investment um, for me. And, and because that's really, if it's a good investment, then the company has a better probability of succeeding. So I, I do want to compliment you, but but maybe just talk talk a little bit about the key founders and members of the team and then the quality of the board. Um, and then we can get in a little bit into the partnership, particularly with Northwell, but you know that that's cat that's catalyzed you. Yeah, no, it's it's a great question. And you referred earlier to a chatbot and then talked about why you didn't like the word and, and it's really a broader platform. And, you know, initially it was, the company was, um, was founded by, uh, Wes Shell, who's now the 
um, chairman and, and Dr. Phil Marshall, who's the head of product. And actually, I, I was with them when, when this whole genesis of the company um, happened. We, were, we had hired Phil at a previous company at Healthline, and he had worked at WebMD. And we were talking about other products we could develop in, under the Healthline umbrella and came up with this notion called digital dialogues, which was a precursor to a chatbot. So when this was founded, it really was um, about a chatbot. And it was about, hey, if you could just reach out to patients with light touches, um, you can keep them connected and change behavior and 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 it was a brilliant insight, and it was forward thinking, um, but it really has evolved. So right now, the the chatbot piece of it is the current user experience. But you can imagine in the future, it'll be one of a number of user experiences. There'll be omni-channel access to the platform, but the platform is really designed, as we talked about before, to provide virtual care and communications. And it's all about driving outcomes. So there's a whole, you know, uh, data analytics component to this and, you know, lots of connectivity and, you know, it's really EMR data plus PRO data plus connected device data, you know, all encompassing the wisdom of the patient to help make better decisions. So it's, it's evolved into something much larger, as you said. Um, and the team we've built reflects that. So we, you know, we've brought on, you know, a really strong management team. Everybody has had successes in their past. So we're, we're strong in really understanding the market. Clinically, we understand technology. I, in healthcare, I've seen where you have, you know, really, really rock star people from within healthcare. Um, it's very difficult for them to take an outsider view and innovate when you have, you know, rock star technologists. They don't really understand the dimensions of, of healthcare. So we've got both. And I think we've built a strong technology and operations capability with our head of um, technology and our head of operations as well. And then, as you mentioned, the board, it's interesting. We've got, you know, one board member who is very, very forward thinking. He's tied in with the innovation centers of a number of large leading healthcare institutions. And I joke all the time that he's living in the future. He he brings back to us sort of, you know, messages from the future. And it's sort of like, wow, we, we probably can't do that right now, but that's what we're aspiring to. So how do we make sure we're setting ourselves up to continue to move in that direction. We've got another board member who uh, is an executive at Northwell who really re- represents, you know, the, the buyer. He can, he can really give us the here and now, all that sounds really good, but, you know, I'm trying to solve this problem. How can you continually bring this down to the language that I need to hear around a problem that's sitting in front of me? It's about the outcome. It's about the ROI, as you talked about. And, and that sounds simplistic, but, they bring very nuanced perspectives on, you know, below that, what does that mean and how do we need to craft the product and message it and position it and implications for who we partner with and, and all of those things. And then we've got others around the table, yourself included, that, you know, bring just enormous experience and, and windows into, uh, you know, opportunities. The, the biggest challenge for us is this platform can do lots of things. And so, um, well, we want to fully exploit the potential and, and be able to have as much impact on healthcare. We're certainly a mission-driven company. Um, we need to do it in a, in a way that's at least focused sequentially. So what, what can we do now? What do we do next? What do we do after that? And so, um, you know, as you said, though, it's been, a, it, it's been a great, you know, all of this stems from the team. And I agree with you that because of the team, we've been able to attract the capital and that obviously increases the not only the chances for a good investment, but you know the chances for us to really have the impact that we want to have in the in the industry. Great, um, and so I'd love to just get your opinion on on this COVID world in healthcare. And this is a little more open ended of a question, but you really are the front line 
<clears throat> and I just want to expand on it. I know we touched a little bit on it earlier, but and 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 let that kind of be our our send off to listeners. But but what are what are you seeing, and what do you think is is going to come out of this, and 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 is it is it going to be safer to go back and you know reenter the world, so to speak? Which I believe it is, by the way. I I believe we're going into a world where we have to manage risk and not try to avoid it. Yeah, it's, that's a that's a great question. I mean, our, our um, you know, in addition to our value proposition being the quadruple aim of healthcare, we've added this mantra around helping people stay connected without getting infected, and we mean that from the patient's perspective as well as the provider's perspective, and now you know the employee and wherever this gets extended to. So. I think you're exactly right in the way you characterized it, which is, and we're part of the solution, which is um, the world is going to go back to work and people are going to go back to elective procedures. As you wisely said, most of those procedures are, you know, they're elective in the short term, but you need, you need, you, you know, if you have glaucoma or, you know, you've got a knee issue or, you know, you've got, um, you know, dialysis, <laughs> right. It's not elective. It's elective for a short period of time. Um, and so, yeah, people are going to come back. I, and we'll be safer because we'll be putting in um, these precautions, and, and we're we're part of this, <clears throat> part of not the full solution. There's some great work being done on you know obviously on um, on actual uh, antibody testing and other other things. Um, so I, I think that's exactly right. I do think though that there's going to be some of that risk mitigation is going to be. I only want to go into a hospital when it's absolutely necessary. So I think the bar for people to come back will be higher and where you really don't need to do it. You don't want to do it. And that's, that's a big opening for people to jump in as I think we're doing and saying, look, let's not, let's not reduce the quality of care because we're not having people come in. This is an opportunity to actually do what we should be doing. It would just take longer to do, which is how can we, how can we do things in a virtual way with the same or better quality level at a significantly lower cost, much better convenience for the patient, and without burdening our already overburdened um, healthcare providers, where we have a shortage of you know two million healthcare workers and it projected for the next uh, next five years. So, I think it's going to accelerate all that, um, and and we're going to actually have better outcomes because of it. Because even if you could come in with no risk whatsoever to a hospital at very high cost, you're going to go in when you need to go in. It, it's not about preventative care. It's not about ongoing. Monitoring. It's not about promoting self-care and shared decision making to stay ahead of the, the the complications. And so, I really think we need to move to this world that's been really reactive. It's pushing us, you know, more quickly into this world that that's really uh, going to be about proactive care. Well, so that's so that uh, touches on one thing. I'll say is one of our one of our old advisors uh, is at Mayo in, in Rochester, and you know, it's not the best located place. And I, this is probably four years ago. I remember him telling me that with Medicare reimbursements for basic visits going down and you know, they, they weren't, um, their, their profit margins were just plummeting, but then they had this problem, which is if they didn't want these basically loss leading visits anymore, then how do they keep the relationship with the patient so that when they have these, what we're now calling elective procedures, hip replacements, cancer care, et cetera. How did they keep them front, you know, front and center, so that they kept that relationship? So that's to me, that's a really big added value that Conversa can provide because 
you, you know, we've we've talked in the past about um, the, the 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 patients just by having the chatbot stay in touch with them. They felt connected, right? And they kept that relationship. Um, I don't know if there's anything worth adding there, but whether I'm speaking, you know, I, I think there's a lot there. In fact, in fact, um, what what a health a hospital system operator, especially on the financial side, would say we, we hear it all the time is this platform helps us with keepage and leakage, and it's a big problem. And it, it was a bigger it was a big problem before COVID, right? Where you had somebody go in and they were diagnosed with cancer. Um, and then they go have their treatment at a competing hospital. And some of these places, New York in particular, is hyper, hyper competitive with, with the hospital systems there. So um, there's a lot of, of you know, opportunity for keepage and there's a lot of you know, shoring up for, for leakage. And with COVID, that's just been exacerbated because everybody's disconnected. So how do you get them connected to your point? And then how now can you use these tools to it really is the relationship builder. So it's, it's, it, it has the clinical value that I've been, um, that I've been focusing on. But to your point, this is the way that, that a health system or a provider or, you know, even people that don't have the strongest relationships, health plans and pharmaceutical companies and those that need to build relationships with, um, with patients uh, will be doing it in the future, we believe. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, and you and I can go on for hours on this and other things. <laughs> But, uh, um, it's awesome. It's always great to talk to you. I appreciate your uh, taking the time. No, this is uh, this was great, David. I really appreciate you uh, you reaching out and doing this. It was, it was uh, we, we we roamed a lot of ground, and it was all uh, all very interesting. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks again. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Definitely. Take care. Bye bye.